the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. probably wonder why I always check up in that corner. It's because it lets me know we're live, and I'm always waiting for the signal. So here we are, live from Georgetown, Texas, on June 3rd, 2018, for another edition of Chalcedon Q&A, a little meat of the word. And uh, we're going to wait a minute while Ground Control gets us connected to the website, and that way people can uh, interact or view us both on Facebook Live here, or at calcedon.edu, the website for the Calcedon Foundation. If you've not been to the website, you should consider taking a look. It's an extremely powerful tool, and uh, it's one of the most unique uh, research items out there in terms of uh, the biblical faith and the faith for all of life. So I see Ground Control is with us, and Ground Control will let us know as soon as we're connected, and then we'll proceed with the questions. We had five questions that were sent in, at ask.calcedon at calcedon.edu. If you want your questions to be answered first uh, for next week, then by all means, send them by mail, and we take them in the order they're received. Hello, Kent. And once they're received, they funnel into me, and I get a chance to take a look at them in advance. Priscilla, welcome. We are live, so we can proceed with the questions. The one's a doozy, the first one. Uh, <clears throat> this is from uh, Roger Oliver. How far does Paul's admonition extend that a woman should not exercise authority over a man? Can she hold public office, exercise authority over a man as a business owner? How do we handle the biblical data related to this? Now, talk about a powder keg. This is one of the big ones. And this is also an area where there is a swinging of the pendulum going on between two different sides. I'm going to ask Ground Control, just for reference, to put up uh, the link to my article, Patriarchy versus Feminism. Good afternoon, Douglas, Jerry, uh, and uh, Becky. Good to have you here, too. Uh, Patriarchy versus Feminism, which gives an interesting overview on the collision between the two sides. Now, when we have a dispute like this, that it is obvious that both sides are talking past each other, and the way that Warfield put it this way is, uh, what the reasons that are palmary for one side are read out of court by the other, which means each side believes that the data they're looking at is the only data that matters, the only relevant, pertinent data. The other side's points are out of court, not relevant, not pertinent, and don't belong. So they're talking past each other. And whenever you have that, it means you're arguing across presuppositional systems. And that tends to be inherently fruitless, as Dr. Bonson pointed out. When you uh, argue across presuppositional systems, you will talk past each other. Uh, it means that the, one or the other side is using the wrong paradigm, uh, or the, neither side is totally correct in everything they affirm. Each side is trying to uphold a certain biblical concept as they see it. And in the process, uh, they anything that looks like it contends or contradicts or balances 
or uh, weighs against their viewpoint then becomes under attack. And as is common in 21st century theology, when someone criticizes an idea, people tend to feel personally attacked, and then we uh, have a lot of heat and very, very little light entering the question. So let's talk about uh, some of these aspects. Uh, I think it's important to start with a passage such as Numbers 27. Numbers 27 is an area of Scripture that is, I think, not paid enough attention to. It's an area where God's law actually expands a little bit, and God set it up this way so that it would be obvious what was going on in Numbers 27. The daughters of Zelophehad, their father is no longer there, but the father had no sons. So who gets the land? In principle, based on the way the law of God looked like it was structured, nobody gets the land, so some other tribe's going to get it. It gets absorbed into the rest of the tribe. And uh, the daughters of Zelophehad come to Moses and say, this isn't right. There's something very, very wrong here that our father's land, because you, you, cause you're saying it can't go to us. Moses thought it was important enough to consult God himself, and God himself says, the daughters of Zelophehad have spoken right. You will, in fact, give them the land. And this sets a new uh, standard in place, at least new from the point of view of what Moses was receiving. It uh, said uh, gave a, an order for the um, inheritance for land. It meant that women can own land. In fact, this is, becomes obvious because Caleb gave his daughter a lot of land, and even more when she asked for more. Uh, so, and land is controlled in authority in itself. And the Bible is a land-based religion. So to have land, to have property, is a big deal. Uh, it's where prosperity and wealth uh, originate and uh, are, arise out of, because God then lets the land yield her strength to the people who own it and who work it. So the very fact that we have such an example as the daughters of Zelophehad, that's a mouthful, in the scriptures indicates that there's something important here at the core of biblical law. And as Rushdoony points out in his commentary on Numbers, when he deals with chapter 27, it meant that faith and faithfulness come before gender and sex, not the X chromosome and Y chromosome count, but rather where you stood with God. And so God profoundly endorsed the position of these women. And Caleb apparently ran with it too, uh, in case of his own daughter. So that, that's a big deal. Second point is that we often see folks say, well, uh, a, a daughter or a wife can have her vows overturned. This is expressed in Numbers 30 uh, by the head of the household if he does so within 24 hours, within the day he heard of it. Uh, consequently, it means that everything she says is going to be overridden by the husband. I believe, uh, and Rashtuni holds, that this is an erroneous reading of Scripture. Rather, this one clause, that the, what is a vow anyway? Get down to that. A vow is a vow or a promise to God to give a free will offering over and above a tithe or first fruit or anything like this. And what happens in the household is the zeal of the daughter or the wife exceeds the practical ability of the household to see that vow through. Uh, and, and so in this one case, the wife has uh, can be uh, have her position reversed, or the daughter have her position reversed by the head of household if he acts swiftly. He can say, no, I'm going to release you from that promise. We don't have the capital to do that safely. Though I, I'm, and it's all about a heart for God. Remember, the, the vow is because the woman has a heart for God and the things of God and the charters and projects of God in her midst, and she wants to see that God's kingdom is properly capitalized. He said, I want to give this gift of you know, three shekels uh, of silver to the Lord. 
and uh, and I vow to give it. I promise the Lord I'll give this three. And it's only that kind of promise that is a free will offering that can be subject to review by the person who is generally the breadwinner of the household, which is the husband. If he doesn't speak within the allotted time, the thing stands. If a widow makes such a um, promise, it stands too, just like it would for a man. It simply says that uh, the woman's vow, which is a vow for a free will offering over and above what God requires, can be subject to overview by the husband or the father. In all other cases, the vows stand for the woman, rather the, the any oaths or things that she makes, her promises, her contracts, her commitments are not subject to overview. She becomes an agent for the family. If it's a wife, she's the agent for the husband. Abigail is agent for Nabal. Whether he approves of her uh, acting on uh, to deal with David, who's upset, <laughs> very angry, wroth, and uh, willing to put his anger into action, uh, it's not Nabal's call at that point, because... Abigail has full agency and authority of the household. This is the gist of Proverbs 31 also. So in these cases, we have uh, an example where the woman in, in Proverbs 31 has business on the side, and she's able to uh, assess a field and purchase it with her own capital uh, and that she gets from her own um, business. So these are all indicative that the woman is not subjugated as is commonly mistaught in respect to the scriptures. Uh, far from it. She can be a very, very powerful person. If you don't think a woman can be a powerful person, check out the Queen of Sheba. She visits Solomon, and Solomon receives her and answers all her questions, uh, and they exchange some very interesting gifts. Quite a lot of stuff was under her power and control. Uh, you're going to be under, if you live in that realm, then you're going to have to deal with the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, Jesus calls her, and to the point that she had authority. And it was not, And it's interesting, Solomon didn't say, I can't receive you as a, uh, a um, representative of your nation. I don't regard any woman as a proper leader for a nation. Uh, Solomon didn't go there, did he? And he had every opportunity, knowing God's law perfectly, and knowing justice perfectly, uh, and still at pretty much at the high point of his reign, there was nothing uh, terribly dubious at that point. Uh, that would have been a good good time to, to draw attention to biblical categories and draw a line. But he doesn't draw a line. He receives her, and he acts graciously toward the queen, uh, and they seem to be able to have such an interesting dialogue that Jesus draws attention to it, that she will rise up in judgment on this generation because she came in to see Solomon, and a greater than Solomon is here. So we want to at least make it clear that the subjugation of women, when that is being taught as some kind of concomitant uh, or a corollary of the patriarchal position, that doesn't fly in the Bible. Now, I mentioned earlier that when you talk across presuppositional systems, it's inherently, well, it's divisive and it's also fruitless. I think a, a new paradigm needs to be looked at, potentially, uh, and it's one that we seem to miss a lot. We always read this wonderful passage in Ephesians 5 uh, about how we are husbands to love the wife as the uh, Christ loves the church. And then he includes in verse 26, washing her with the water of the word. Now, that is actually supposed to be not only for Christ and the church, but the husband and the wife. What's the husband's obligation to the wife? To be washing her continually with the water of the word, to be raising her up 
in the Word of God continuously so that she can be mighty in the Word and, and not a, a slacker or someone who is merely sub servile and off in the corner somewhere. Rather, she's to be made strong in the Word of God so that you can have women saying profound things like Hannah to Eli uh, and uh, Mary uh, in the Magnificat and how these things come to their hearts and their minds just because it's up here. Uh, they have been trained that way. They've been raised up in the faith. And in the case of a, a father um, to a daughter and children, they are to be raised that way. And also, that doesn't stop when a uh, husband has a wife. She, he also has an obligation. And that is to, to do what? To make sure that his helpmeet is on level with him. Uh, and that he and he certainly should not be behind her <laughs> in any sense, uh, in so far as that he's, his obligation is to be washing her. She shouldn't have to be washing him at that point, though it can happen many times as we have role reversals uh, due to slothfulness on the part of men. Uh, AB Ground Control can find another article called The Failure of Men that Dr. Rushduni wrote, and if so, go ahead and post that. That's also pertinent to this discussion, indicative that when men fail, what's your options at that point? They're not good. So going back to the question of a new presuppositional approach, if we make that idea important, more important than we have, because I rarely see it, but by the way, I very, very rarely see husbands leading their wives and washing them with the water of the word so that they become mighty in the scripture and that they, all these scriptural virtues are being manifested in the wife because the husband is doing this just as Christ does with the church, uh, things change very radically when this becomes the model. Let me tell you why. Because the current dispute is uh, about rights. I, as husband, have a right under a patriarchal thing for you to obey me and submit to me and all these other things. And the woman says, I have a right that my skill sets and my uh, things that I can bring to bear uh, are, are honored and respected and received and not shut down. In other words, one's arguing for a liberty that the Bible seems to indicate exists, and the other's arguing for subservience that they think they exist. So in each case, they're arguing for a right. They have contending rights, and this is where we have the presuppositional crosstalk. Each one's talking about their rights. Whereas I think if we rearrange this in terms of what are our responsibilities and duties and obligations under God, that changes the picture very, very radically. Now we're talking about something else. We're talking now about ourselves as opposed to what someone else owes me, either a liberty or um, an abundant knee or whatever this, that one might be. And of course, I'm using extreme forms of rhetoric here to highlight the conflict between the two sides as it's normally staged between egalitarian, uh, complementarian, all these other terms, which you don't like because in each of these cases, they're not talking about the obligations and duties and responsibilities, they're talking about their rights. And uh, as Ingram once wrote when he wrote that wonderful little pamphlet, What's Wrong with Human Rights? It's because when people have nothing but rights, then no one talks about responsibilities and duties. Whereas the Bible does not talk about us having rights. It talks about us having obligations and duties and responsibilities. We are answerable to God who made us. We are created beings and therefore God's property. And for property to talk about rights doesn't make a lot of sense. But for us to talk about, thank you, failure of men is up there. For us to talk about failure of men... Um, um, let me back up a second because I'm reading and, and talking at the same time. The, the point there is we need to operate in terms of our obligations and responsibilities and duties. And then things take on a very, very different form. Now, this is not to say that um, authority necessarily inheres all the time in service. For example, 
the two, you know, Mary and Martha are having, they're having Jesus over. One's observing the service model. Did that give her authority at that time? Actually, she got in trouble for it in a sense. He was rebuked for it. You know, the other one shows the better portion to sit at Jesus' feet. Sometimes service uh, cannot be absolutized. It's that simple. Christ did not allow it. Not in his presence. It was not allowed. Uh, so, too, we have to be uh, yeah, and responsiveness to stewardship. That's a point Douglas also makes. When we start to rethink the paradigm, we start to see, now, what is my obligation here? And then a, a husband will be looking at Ephesians 5.26 and says, Boy, do I fall short of washing my water with the, my wife with the water of the word and raising her up to be a, a Bible scholar and mighty in the word and therefore applying the faith across the board to the family. Uh, Tim Yarbrough is very fond of saying, there's a passage in Proverbs 31 about the, the children rising up and calling their mother blessed. And he says, where does that come from, that motivation? What prompts the, women, the, the children to do this? And he says it's the husband who is inculcating this spirit in the children to see their mother in this way, you see. So there's all sorts of interaction going on there, and I think Tim has done us a service in drawing attention to it. I said this is inculcated by husband on the behalf of the wife. So he's discharging an obligation to her with respect to the children so that they rise up and call her blessed. He's also doing what he needs for her sake and, and so that he can, her heart of her husband can trust in her. What a huge uh, thought is contained in that one sentence, the heart of her husband can trust in her so he can sit safely at the gates, if you will. Now, Roger, uh, Paul, uh, Roger Oliver asks, um, the extent of what Paul has to say. Now, for those who want to get the inside uh, discussion on this, it's kind of a technical one. Uh, there's an article by James B. Hurley, Did Paul Command Women to Wear Veils or Keep Silence in the Churches? It's from the um, journal for the Westminster Theological Seminary. It was published in the late 70s. And uh, on request, people would pri uh, private message me on Facebook. I provide that article for their review. And it points out that the context uh, uh, in those passages in First Corinthians uh, essentially relate to the passing judgment on um, prophecies and things like that, uh, that and the interpretation of tongues. It actually is a much narrower scope than is normally accorded that uh, some of these statements, therefore, then are shorn or stripped from their context to, uh, and then broadened, un, um, what's the word I would say, uh, unjustifiably broadened beyond where they are. It's kind of like what happened with the Numbers 30, where the uh, a power of a husband or a wife, uh, father to overthrow or, or subvert or set aside within tw uh, the same day it happens the vow of a uh, daughter or a wife that relates only to a free will offering vow. That's the only kind of vow that's actually in view in that passage of Scripture. And it is the exception to the general rule that the wife and the daughter, their vows do count. Uh, or rather, their, their oaths, their word does count, except the case of a free will offering vow. As Dr. Rushdoony discusses in that passage. Thank you. Yeah, the, we have that up there. The uh, um, Galaxy.com article, WT. J Journal 35206. Thank you, Ground Control, for finding that. It was a little tricky. That way you don't have to, you can click on the link and read the whole thing. It's technical, it gets into the Greek terms, explains why, uh, what the notion is about uh, 
why she wears it with respect to the angels because of the angels. It's a very interesting clause. And I think Hurley is one of the few people who actually took it seriously and dealt with it in a satisfying way. And therefore, it's probably the best exposition of this passage here. Uh, can she hold public office? So here's one of those other uh, ideas where we cross presuppositional systems. On the one side, uh, they say, look, we don't want to look at like Isaiah 3. Isaiah 3 depicts a culture that's in decline, and what's distinctive about it is that they're ruled by women and children. What is omitted in that passage when we discuss it that way, it's as if they raise themselves to that power and authority. That's not what the text says. If the early part of Isaiah 3 says, God's uh, judging the nation, says, I'm going to remove the stay and the staff and the wise man and, and the counselor, I'm going to pull them all out. In other words, God is leveling and, and sweeping through and destroying all the men, all the men in power. Uh, and all that's left are the women. And so, of course, they're going to have to fill those shoes at that point. They, by default, there's a failure of men, and as a consequence of the failure of men, the women then take those slots. Uh, and that's kind of a distressing thing to hear, but that's the way it, it works. Uh, it's sometimes the best man for the job is a woman because there are no men that are qualified. That said, that's not the norm. That's a judgment situation. Now, if it's a judgment situation, this becomes very, very interesting. Very interesting. Because we have this propensity saying we don't like judgment. If God says, I'm going to judge you, we're going to pretend like he didn't. We're going to go straight ahead. For example... The Israel encountered judgment when God said, what, are you listening to the ten spies who gave an evil report? I'm not going to let you go in the land. You're going to wander around for 40 years. That's your judgment. And all of a sudden the people said, eh, I want to go, we're going to go anyway. We'll take the land. It's okay, God. Uh, forget what we said about the spies being right, and we're going to go in there and take the, the promised land. And it didn't work. God condemned and destroyed that work because they were avoiding judgment. They did not want to take the medicine that God prescribed. And when God prescribes medicine, you must take it. Uh, you, you cannot just shake off God's yoke at that point. It is a curative and redemptive thing for God to judge us. It's a righteous thing for him to do it. And therefore, for us to shake off that yoke and say, no, 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 we're going to uh, undo God's judgment and, 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 and wind back the clock and fix things the way they were. With God, that doesn't work. With God, he says, this is the penalty. If you have, and it's going to come up with our fifth question today, if you have violated the land Sabbath for 490 years, then you're going to Babylon, and there's no coming back until the land enjoys her Sabbaths. That's a judgment situation. So when you have a nation under judgment, and trust me, every nation pretty much in the world deserves God's judgment on many countless counts, uh, and for various reasons, uh, you will not escape that judgment. You go through the judgment, and if God's with you through that judgment, you will go out the other side, and you will then be purified as a consequence of that. And this has happened after they came back from the Babylonian exile. Idolatry was virtually no more problem in Israel thereafter. They even uh, freed the slaves for a while, and not uh, and observed the poor tithe. Remarkably, during the Maccabean era, they were actually observing the poor tithe. And they had an excess of monies in the treasury at Jerusalem as a consequence. They had no more poor people. Now, that didn't last very long. Within 200, less than 200 years, they went back to their old ways again. And they were grinding the face of the poor again. And God was giving judgment. So what's this have to do? An Isaiah 3 situation where the women are in charge tends to be a judgment situation in general. Uh, and that means that uh, God has therefore put that in place over you. 
It's the same thing when Jesus says, show me a denarius, show me a coin. And then, because he doesn't have one. He doesn't have a Roman coin, which is one corrupt currency because it's debauched. And it has a, uh, an icon on it, an image. And so he, then he, he doesn't have one himself. The fact that they have one means that they are under Roman subjugation. It's proof that they're under judgment. And, G and Jesus draws attention to this in this famous passage, a very misunderstood passage. So, uh, how do we handle the biblical data with this? What we need to do is to take into account all the biblical data. I think we need to start backing away from what are my rights as to, and uh, rather, what are my obligations and duties and responsibilities. You know, someone who is adamant about rights is not going to be building much of anything because they're going to have an entitlement mentality. Someone with an attitude about the importance of their responsibilities and duties and obligations will work with all diligence and they will build a society, they will build a culture, they will build God's kingdom, they will build Christendom on the premise of that approach, not the matter of what rights they have, but rather what responsibilities they are to discharge before the Lord. They will see themselves as laborer before him. They will say, uh, we are uh, worthless servants, O God. What a better approach that would be when we look at the male-female problem, to regard each other as, or ourselves as worthless servants, only doing what we're told to do, uh, and that way we can solve these problems much more um, successfully. A lot of these kind of arguments arise in The Cure of Souls by Rushduni, where he talks about issues between spouses and how they relate to the power balance between them. What is and isn't normative? Um, another good source to take a look at. So I would say this. We're still working through this situation. Right now, both sides of this are generating a lot of uh, Facebook heat. Uh, on, on their side and, and making divisions and things uh, and to show how pure they are in, a, in promoting their particular point of view. And I'd like to see the entire argument put in a different ballgame entirely, different arena. Take it out of the scene of rights and move over to the scene of responsibilities and duties and obligations, starting with who? Husbands' rights and authorities and, and responsibilities. Uh, and then see if that doesn't, because that, that's what's going to happen. The wife's going to pick up on that. Uh, she will respond when she's being washed by the water of the word. Uh, the church responds when Christ does it to us. Would not the wife do the same for the husband? Of course. These things are all built into the fabric of creation, and God sees to it. When we avoid these things, then we're in a world of hurt. And that's what we have, is a, is a very, very serious problem. Now, if a woman owns a business, and you work for her, you're going to have to make a decision. Am I going to listen to her when she gives me instruction? I'm going to say, you have no authority over me, you're a woman. I think you're not going to have that job very, very long. Here's the extreme case of saying women can have no authority over men. Uh, this would be the reason why in some cultures in the Middle East, it's not, it is a crime for a woman to drive a vehicle. Apart from other factors, a man would have to yield to the woman at a certain intersection. It would mean that uh, she would have authority over him because of her being in the car. Men are willing then in that culture to uh, yield potentially to another man, but not yield to a woman. So when you get into the extreme case, a woman can't even be mobile in a culture which starts to elevate that particular alleged principle um, and, and absolutize it. In all cases, what we're finding is that each side is absolutizing something, and the truth is somewhere closer in the middle. And the truth is not in terms of rights, but in terms of responsibilities and duties and obligations. I think we have to shift our presuppositional base away from the one to the other. Then what is right falls out naturally as people discharge their duties and obligations. 
that's the thing that's kind of fascinating to me. Uh, there's a passage that Rishtuni loves in John 7, for 17th verse. Uh, he who does uh, the will of God will know of the doctrine if it is true. In other words, by walking in the way, the it, it self-reinforces itself mentally in you. And so in other words, obedience precedes understanding. Here we're demanding, we want to understand the position, then we'll obey it. And in John 7, God tells us, go ahead and obey it, and then you'll understand it. And I think it's the same thing too. If we start to absorb, move in terms of God's responsibilities and duties, we will be building, and in building, we will have our partner alongside us in that project. You know, it's been said by Rashtuni that Garden of Eden was a pilot project. It's a pilot project not only because they're going to work with the earth and the animals in the earth, but between the two of them, it's a pilot project. Between Adam and Eve, they have a pilot project going on. And they didn't do very well at it. All of our marriages are a pilot project, in effect. And we need to see that all those pilot projects are not a matter of up, 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 uh, laying down the law, but rather working in terms of Ephesians 5.26, washing them with the water of the Word. By the way, the, the Word of God, entering in a Word, brings light uh, and also... Uh, empowers us, the Spirit speaks through it and quickens it to our hearts, all sorts of advantages to that, and it's the most um, disregarded passage of all Scripture. When my late wife Darlene passed away, I gave the uh, one of the messages, uh, the first of the three messages, uh, at her memorial service in Austin, and I made a comment. I said, a lot of people thought that she was raising the bar for all the things that she did as a Christian woman. And I said, this is not the truth. The truth is everyone else has lowered the bar, and she's just doing what she should be doing, and, and gladly with joy. But most people have lowered the bar, which that's got to stop too. And you know, one quick way to lower the bar, argue about your rights. One way to raise the bar, start in uh, exhorting one another about your responsibilities and duties, starting with your own. Yeah, start inward first, and then everything moves out from there. Uh, and, of course, there's some very good uh, books that Andrea Schwartz has written uh, that touch on this topic very, very uh, pointedly. Uh, I will go ahead and uh, defer to that. I think that post, that uh, the link that she provided, is, is a good starting point if you want to understand some of these ideas a little bit more. I'm going to move to the second question at this point, because I think I've definitely beaten that one to the ground. Do you think there's any downside biblically in pursuing information about people who are possibly related to you via your DNA, for example, 23andMe or Ancestry.com? There's certainly a verse in Scripture, uh, look to the uh, rock from whence you were hewn, look to the pit from whence you were digged, look unto uh, Abraham who bore you and, uh, and Sarah, etc. So all this is to be aware of where we came from. So if we're talking about... Uh, someone who is adopted and was curious about their own uh, ancestry, uh, there might be some advantage. Now, I just recently was looking at a letter that actually arrived some years ago, and I was just reviewing it from someone who was arguing the importance of um, ancestry. A and unfortunately, I believe the gentleman is pushing a heretical point, uh, certainly an aberrational point, if not heretical, um, because he's trying to say that current Gentiles are actually genetically related to Abraham. He's trying to reverse the um, verbs in almost every sentence in Paul's writings to make that happen. If it was so important to be a descendant of Abraham, why would the scriptures have said God can raise up from these very stones children for Abraham? 
it didn't look like it played well in Peoria with God. He didn't care. You know, to, to argue ancestry didn't make a point. Uh, so if I think if we don't put undue emphasis on it, I don't think it is harmful per se. I don't think there's a biblical reason to say we should not know or be unaware of our um, background. Now, Melchizedek did not know, <laughs> and perhaps because he was a, um, it was called a theophany, a pre-manifestation of the Christ uh, at the time. Uh, and, of course, he wouldn't have a human mother and father at that point in time at all uh, if Melchizedek is, in fact, Jesus in a pre-incarnation manifestation, which uh, has been argued by probably about, about half the scholars out there believe that Melchizedek might well have been Christ himself. Uh, but setting aside whether he was or wasn't, the point is he did not have a genealogy, and it didn't hurt him any because the whole entire priesthood was named after him, and apparently there were only two people who ever were priests after that order, Melchizedek himself and Christ, and arguably just Christ himself, if Melchizedek was in fact the uh, the Prince of Salem, Prince of Peace. So uh, I don't see a biblical problem with uh, pursuing the information. Now, does that mean that you can steal someone's DNA to find out? That's a whole different ballgame. And uh, now we have ethical uh, boundaries uh, that, and some people don't want to be found, that's for certain. Uh, and then the question is, how do you penetrate that veil when someone says, I don't want the person to know that I'm their natural mother, say. And there's a reason I gave her up for adoption and went off and started my life somewhere else. And there's a lot of heartache involved in that. Lots of times Paul t wants to uh, see if he can spare us heartache that is not necessary. Uh, perhaps we get satisfaction in one area and profound hurt in another by discovering this. But there's, I don't think there's a biblical reason uh, that says you cannot or should not do it. Wisdom and whether it's worth the expense is another question. Next question. Do you believe it is wise to refuse Social Security even though there are penalties attached to doing so? and eventually increased cost once a person gives in to the pressure? Would using that money for godly endeavors be a way around the unbiblical nature of the system? There are those who can opt out of Social Security system. Ironically, <laughs> looks like most of our elected officials have. So, setting aside the hypocrisy of their actions and their conduct and their policies uh, to themselves, uh, it is perfectly valid uh, to opt out when you can legally do so or you can move somewhere else where you're not being inflicted with this false promise. Because, of course, there is no place where the money is being kept and saved up for you. Uh, as Wellman said, if a private pension fund was operated like Social Security, the people who ran it would be in jail already, life sentences. But right, because the government's running it, it's okay. And they've been raiding it, uh, throwing, putting the money into the general fund and doing it with whatever Congress wants with it ever since. And so they, it is not solvent. It hasn't been solvent for a long time and it has the force of government behind the collection process. So uh, it depends on where you stand. Um, I think there's nothing wrong with legally opting out and taking the heat for it. Uh, there are those who are more than willing to do it, and if you're prepared for it, counting the cost, right? If you're going to wage war like this against the state, uh, and, and it's just a more extreme form of what, like, homeschooling is, saying we don't want the state's participation in the raising of our children. So, too, we don't want the state's participation in our providing for our own uh, well-being when we're older. Uh, we want to do this privately, or we want to use the money for something else. Nothing biblically wrong with that. No one says you have to uh, opt in if you have a way out that doesn't violate the law. Besides becoming a 
representative or congressman or something like that, <laughs> which is the cheap and dirty way out. So yes, I would think that that money could be used. Now remember, the tithe is premised on your gross after the cost of um, um, production has been removed. For those who argue that taxes are a cost of production, that does not seem to fly. Uh, at least not in all cases, certainly not in income tax. There's reasons to consider that. God's first fruits really does mean first fruits. It does mean the government gets the first fruits, and then you give what's left and tithe of that. Uh, we need to think in biblical categories around this topic. Yes, uh, that's funny. Joy Ike makes an interesting point that we've been fed a bill of goods. <laughs> uh, and, right. And, of course, that all fell apart, too. So it wasn't just merely the excess that has been appropriated. It's all been misappropriated. Funniest line in the previous election was Mr. Gore saying, we're going to put that money in a lockbox. And, of course, it had a false bottom. <laughs> no matter who whose lockbox lock box it is, there's nothing safe about it when the government has its fists in it. All right, next question. How should Christians respond to censorship on social media? Is it something to fight or best to leave it in God's hands? Now, social media, one has to understand, is supposedly a, um, a something that you enter into voluntarily. No one has to be on social media. The whole thing could fall apart just tomorrow if everyone decides, I'm not going to be on Facebook today, and Zuckerberg's stock's going to drop like a rock because he counts on everyone for the advertising dollars and the metrics that they pull. So the value of being on social media is mixed to begin with. I make a quotation from Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, he um, was questioned in Time Magazine, I think May 21st issue, 2018, uh, under six questions at the very end of the magazine. And he's talking about social media, and he says, believe me, there is no lasting content on social media. So if it's lasting content you're interested in, and you should be, something that sticks, that lasts, that isn't just ephemeral and like a tweet gone, then social media is not necessarily the place you want to be working in the first place. But if you understand the limitations of the tool, then it has some advantage. Now, if you're saying, I'm being censored, does it mean I got blocked from a group because I was contentious? Then maybe that's the way it worked. Or maybe they were contentious. Maybe you had the truth and they weren't willing to hear it and they blocked that guy. You know, Because from our point of view, he's wrong because we're promoting the opposite position. There's not a lot you can do about that. Uh, the admins have tremendous authority uh, in a, a Facebook group, if that's what you're referring to. Uh, the other kind of censorship, of course, is when uh, all conservative causes by um, are being filtered out by Facebook or Google uh, or Wikipedia. Wikipedia is notorious for uh, one-sided argumentation. Try putting up anything that is even the remotest critical of uh, climate change theory and it'll be removed instantly. Or, as a case that comes close to, to home in Wikipedia, not quite social media, but right on the corner of it, uh, when they keep quoting a little piece of, so, of um, page 159, uh, Foundations of Social Order, to say, here's Dr. Rashtuni using the N-word. The entire quote shows he's quoting from a um, litany uh, from another group entirely and criticizing it. And when each time I put the entire quotation in, which added the context that showed Rashtuni was quoting someone else to criticize it, everything, every single time it got removed and edited out because they want to make clear that Dr. Rashtuni, even if it's a lie 
on their part, they try to put the N-word into Dr. Rashtuni's mouth, as if he was a racist. And the opposite is the truth, but they censor any attempt to correct the record with the entire quotation, which shows that they were wrong, that they were mishandling the data, that they were deliberately lying. And so the same thing can be happening with uh, Facebook. Now, you have as much of any right as any other American citizen uh, to take a case to court. And uh, it certainly was interesting when uh, Zuckerberg was before uh, a congressional hearing and um, Ted Cruz had a few words with him about what he was filtering out on Facebook. And uh, it's going to be interesting because Facebook doesn't exist in its own right. It sits on top of an Internet superstructure, infrastructure, if you will. And uh, all of a sudden we find that that infrastructure certainly has some governmental tendrils controlling it. And so if you upset the government beast, the government beast could come back and make things tough for Facebook. And Zuckerberg recognizes this. So sometimes one big monster, will, you know, Godzilla, will respond to King Kong hits him hard enough. And that's what might have to happen. But for Christians in the minority like ourselves who are promoting a particular view, for us to suddenly have um, uh, one of the big ones was, hey, we want to put an ad up uh, related to the Ireland abortion um, vote. And in the interest of neutrality, they said, they blocked all the conservative pro-life ads or abolitionist ads, all of those that were anything opposing uh, the change in Ireland law, anything that would... Uh, so they said, uh, and, and the, nowadays the reasons being very clear. They recognized that it was a knife-edge case, and if the people who are willing to argue stop killing babies continue to pump money in and make those ads, it might change the course of the, of the election. And this is not what the uh, power holders at the top of Facebook wanted. So they argued, no, we're going to prevent that. Uh, in the interest of being neutral and fair, which was anything but fair. Because in um, Ireland itself, you had a very, very limited way to reach these folks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, But it was very easy for the other side to reach. So it essentially forced, what we were arguing for was to balance the thing by making the case for life uh, and making the case against murder of the unborn. And that would at least even the, the playing field. They did not want an even playing field, therefore they blocked it. So if there are legal recourses, you can certainly attempt to try them. But this is untried waters, untested waters that we're dealing with. It's the first time that we're seeing people willing to control our thoughts by shaping what we do and don't see. It's almost a miracle that I'm on Facebook right now, when you think about it. And yet here I am, and we're going to take advantage of the liberty that God has granted in this forum as are others. I see uh, Jay Rogers is uh, with us, and he runs at least one or two uh, Facebook groups as an admin, and it's important for us to have these th opportunities and these venues uh, to share the faith and to encourage one another, exhort one another, and um, also, uh, apart from the encouragement point, to share information. Now, you could do that in other ways, and perhaps that's what's going to happen down the line. There may be a Christian alternative to Facebook one day. Remember, there was a time when MySpace was the only space. <laughs> and, of course, it's long gone, and Facebook took over. But something, if Christians were able to develop something that was better and grew, and Christians grew, uh, uh, grabbed onto it, and it promoted the liberties that the Bible promotes, uh, that might uh, be very interesting. And the competition is a very healthy thing in many regards. And then the best float to the top.
And by the way, when we say, is it something to fight or is best to leave it in God's hands? The reality is that it's always in God's hands anyway, whether you're fighting or not. question is, are you getting in God's way when you're fighting? Uh, that, that becomes a trickier question to answer. It, it's, it's a tough call sometimes. But make no uh, mistake, God is always going to work. Uh, this is already clear in one of my favorite verses from Psalm 119, 126 verse. It's time for thee, O Lord, to work, for they made void thy law. So when God's law is being voided, God does go to work. Uh, he does not tolerate it. He, uh, the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the residue of wrath thou shalt restrain. God is actively working in these parts. And someone mentions uh, become a part of the great conversation. There's already an alternative uh, evidence. I don't believe it's the only one either. How do you look? Uh, maybe there are believers in Zuckerberg's household. You know, this happened with Caesar. There were believers in Caesar's household. So there's no reason why there couldn't be believers there. So, um, and we pray that they're having their influence on uh, the man who's leading that particular business. It's a business, isn't it? But it's more than a business. The final question came in from Zachary Benson. On the line, the question, then we'll, I'll scroll back up and see what we uh, popped up into the feed. What is the biblical view of the statute of limitations? Now, Israel was pretty convinced that there was a statute of limitations on the land Sabbath. You know, every seven years you had to let the land lie fallow and not work it so that it rests. And then you would then resume working the land and yet it yields your strength to you on the eighth year. And for most of Israel's history, it neglected this ordinance and worked the land seven years in a row, seven years in a row without stopping, never let the land rest. So the reason that Jeremiah gives for them being thrown out in exile is God saying, my land shall enjoy her Sabbath. Seventy years shall she get her rest finally. And that's what's going to happen. So that was 490 years of Sabbaths that went by. And so I'd say if there's a statute of limitations, it's uh, bigger than 490 because God enforced that rule after 490 years. That means that uh, at biblical law, uh, there's always a statute, uh, or rather there is no statute, because justice, uh, once it's violated, everything is out of kilter at that point, and we need to have the, um, uh, it must be made straight and right. All the crooked paths need to be made straight, and they cannot remain crooked forever. Now, the straightness can occur on the final judgment, no question about that, but that's not as good a thing as if it's being dealt with here. Um, there's, as I mentioned, a didactic purpose when God's when judgments are in the earth, the Gentiles learn what's right. That's stated in one of the Psalms. So, oh, is our feed gone all the way? I show 11 people still watching me. Ground control, can you tell me if we have a feed? Did we lose something? Do I need to restart? Roberto, okay, we are okay. So, all right, so it could be a local problem, Roberto, with your feed. I dislike it when that happens, and I'm getting a thumbs up. So a thumbs up indicates got some feed. Thank you, Bill Evans. Good to have uh, the word that we're still running. But someone thinks that we're, we're not, so I apologize for that. I'm not, not sure what the cause of that is. Hopefully it's just a local feed in. And Joy can see me okay. All right, let me go look uh, back and see if there were questions that were posed that need answering. It's near the beginning. Jason Garwood, you owe me an address to send that stuff to.
Okay, just one from the website. How would the Word of God apply to typical practice of city-county governments to offer in services such as public libraries and public works? I'm especially interested in this question because I work for a county water wastewater treatment plant. Oh, Philip Kaiser's watching too. Hey, Dr. Kaiser, good to have you here too. So, actually, I, I, uh, Jerry Ward, who is a reconstructionist attorney here, she uh, in Austin, is actually sits on a, uh, a water board here, not a wastewater treatment, but uh, with the um, Lower Colorado River Authority, uh, and it's a lot of politics. Literally, is local politics, and it comes to bear here, where uh, there is in fact payment for the water. Someone has to pay to get the water in. And so there actually is a service being uh, generated. Austin also, unfortunately, has decided that in this, despite the age of the internet, what it needed was a brand new big spanking library, state-of-the-art library, with a garden on top, I believe. <laughs> a vegetable garden on top of it, down in the city where no one will go, and where the parking is prohibitive, etc., etc. Uh, and this is a matter of the utopian leaders figuring this is what a city needs, and then they uh, impose it and inflict it upon the taxpayers who don't want it. Uh, all these things are wonderful projects uh, if they were privately funded and uh, endowed privately. You know, there was a time when the Hartleyan Library, the Bordelian Library, and all these things were either funded by the Crown in England or by private individuals. Uh, the Smithsonian, for example. Now, I believe it's not as private as it once was, but it started off life as a, something that was owned by a private individual. And like Dr. Walter Block indicates in his libertarian writings, everything can be privatized and everything is better privatized than it is when it's run by the government. So uh, the offering of a service, it's certainly possible for an entire group of citizens to say, we want to have this done this way and we're going to put the money into the pot and administer it this way through that. And theoretically, it would have 100% buy-in by every citizen. And then that would be the bed that they want to sleep in. And it might be a good idea, it might be a bad idea. Who's to know? Uh, one thing I do know is that working at the county level is very important. I think Dr. McDermott's book, uh, Taking um, Back America One County at a Time, I'm probably uh, paraphrasing the name of the title of it, but something very much like that. Uh, the point is that one county at a time is the mission because it's the county level that you can do some of the most good in bringing back biblical distinctives uh, a piece at a time. So we can start pulling out the bad rock and putting in the strong rock. Stop the, the building on the sand that um, dominates the cultural landscape. Start building on the rock. Every little piece counts. Every little piece is a better approach unto what God requires. Everything moves the kingdom of God forward a little bit more. Remember this, when they're building the wall around Jerusalem, and that famous work in Nehemiah 4, where he says the work is very great and large, and we are few and far apart along the wall. Now, apart from the fact that it's a great metaphor for us, we are few and far apart along the wall building it. They're far apart because they're not altogether building one part of the wall all these up. They're building the whole wall around, so it goes up, it's a brick tall, two bricks tall, the whole wall, later on it's three bricks tall but it's not in any place the entire 20 feet tall until all of it's 20 feet tall. And that's the way that God tends to build things. Uh, line upon line, precept upon precept is his method. Uh, incremental building uh, and sometimes unseen. We spent a lot of time last week on that passage in uh, Luke, I think it's the 17th verse to the effect, uh, 17th chapter, 
the kingdom of God cometh not by observation. It grows in a way that's not easily seen. Uh, and I'm commenting on John, John Owen's thing that uh, the kingdom that cometh not by observation seemeth vile in the eyes of those who gaze after earthly glory, temporal glory. And we need to f be aware of that. So that means that we don't mind working small and starting at the small levels at the county and city level. Uh, and, but it does apply, and it can be applied locally, and that's the interesting thing. It's much easier to apply the Word of God locally. And sometimes this catches the other side by surprise. They say, holy smokes, this county over there is, is, is you know, virtually reversed all these things that we wanted to have happen at a larger level. Um, the kingdom of Callaway, <laughs> a small little wedge in the middle of the Civil War, ended up being its own kingdom for a while. Uh, so an example of... Um, the lesser magistrate principle, in one sense, interposition from another point of view. Uh, Archie Jones draws a lot of attention to this kind of thing. So a lot of stuff can be done. Cyrus paid for it. Yes, there's also something interesting about that, about the wall, um, that they had um, permissions to go uh, and uh, some funding. What is interesting to me is in the book of Ezra, the artist group, the rescript of Artaxerxes is mentioned in uh, Ezra seventh chapter, I believe, and uh, Artaxerxes argues, why should there be wrath upon the, the king in his realm? And he argues this, why he will not impose a tax, excise, duty, or impound on the kingdom of God. This is where our tax exemption comes from, folks. It is from Ezra 7, the rescript of Artaxerxes, the passage where Artaxerxes says, there would be wrath on the king in his realm if I taxed God. So he refused to tax God. Uh, but our city officials routinely threaten to tax God and God's churches, and uh, there will be wrath from God if they do so. Uh, one point of view, you want to talk like Gary North and says, here, have a belly full. <laughs> Try that on for size. See what happens when God directly acts against you more than he would. Roberto writes, a nation filled with righteous thinking will have a nation filled with status and slaves. That's also a problem because there's two different flavors of statism, in effect. Either Christ is king, or you're going to repose your authority in earthly kings, and you will have your reward. Let's see. I'd like to know if the feed came back. Okay, everything's okay. I wonder what happened there. All right. Hey, uh, also, Ground Control, let me know what our um, timing is, uh, how much more time we have. Uh, Book of the Month Club tomorrow, this Independent Republic, Mark Rushdoony will be leading this along with Andrea Schwartz, a very important early book by Dr. Rushdoony, uh, still one of the uh, most fascinating takes on American history that you will have. Uh, when I uh, do homeschooling in this particular uh, age group, that's required reading. Ah, uh, yes, that's another point. Mark Rushdoony is going to be a keynote speaker this week up in Washington, the Reconstruction Life Conference. Uh, I, I, well, some of us you may know, Dr. Kaiser and I are going to be speaking at the Mars Conference in uh, Pennsylvania in October. Joy Ike writes, Also, the biblical basis for socialized management of roads to cities of refuge and other roads, which many use as justification of socialization of everything, you know, that is correct. The, uh, those, only those specific roads that were to be built and funded by, of all things, the um, head tax. They were required to make these roads. And these roads have another interesting implication. Um, 
for those who have an extreme environmentalist approach, you know, we don't hurt a fly or a minnow or a mosquito. Uh, we don't destroy habitat. Construction of roads destroys habitat. And these roads were demanded by God, commanded to be built to the cities of refuge. There, were, there was no getting around the fact that habitat would be destroyed, and God commanded it. So we cannot, if we want, we have a choice between being a scripture and being a Christian and understanding that the dominion mandate and the stewardship of the earth are things that can be balanced out properly. We take an extreme view and we say we don't build any roads to the cities of refuge. We will not have a pressure safety valve for the wrath of man. And that's just too bad because we want to protect, you know, the coyote or the elk or whatever passes across here. But yeah, it's been justified for that, but it had a specific purpose not just convenience, but justice was the purpose of this, those roads for the city of refuge. Biblical justice, by the way, not humanistic justice. So it doesn't really justify socialist and socialization of anything, let alone roads. And again, I still recommend Privatizations of Roads and Highways by Walter Block, an excellent book uh, printed, I think, by the Mises Press. And the Wall was a public works project. Well, everyone had a benefit in participating in it because everyone would be protected by the wall going up. Thank you. Yeah, Kingdom City, Callaway County, Missouri. Seven minutes. Right, also, Tuesday, if you haven't caught them and you're doing active homeschooling or council homeschoolers or need to direct someone to a place where they can be encouraged and exhorted, uh, definitely plug in Tuesday, midday, to the uh, homeschooling help with Andrea Schwartz and Nancy Wilk. Uh, I think the very last one they had had to deal with difficult questions. And that was very, very sharp. I, I don't know if uh, Andre did that solo. It looked like it at the outset. I don't know if Nancy joined her or who couldn't. But it was very, very powerful stuff dealing with tough questions. And yes, we'd always want to add, uh, be, do consider becoming an underwriter for the Chalcedon Foundation. Uh, our work is limited, humanly speaking, by your donations. And so we appreciate them all. Uh, nothing goes to waste over here. It all goes to the purpose of building God's kingdom. They that shall be of thee shall build, is the opening verse of Isaiah 58, 12. And that's kind of how you know someone is of God. They're busy about the building of God's kingdom. And it's in our midst. And we need to raise it up. And raise up. in order to raise it up, it needs strong foundations. And that's why we're in a process of dealing with a Psalm 11:3 situation. If their foundations are destroyed, what should the righteous do? Answer build new foundations. And those are in process. Everything that's been published by Chalcedon is basically the first scratching the surface of trying to raise up new foundations for many generations. That God can be the repair of the breach, the restorer of the past to dwell in. If there are no more questions, oh, wait a minute. Yes, here we are. I guess we're done here. Yes, if you have a question in advance, feel free to email it. We'll get to those first and foremost, and then take on anything that's live uh, after that point. Appreciate all the support out there. We'll talk to you all next week. God bless every single one of you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, May the Lord richly bless you in all that you do.